Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And thank you again for joining me here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg, and this is Episode 8. We cannot thank Mitch Phillips enough for the voiceover work that he does for us here each and every week, but we're going to keep doing so anyway. So please check him out at mpvoice.com. As always, we appreciate his support and for making us sound better than we really are. You're probably listening through Apple Podcasts right now, so do us a favor, leave a review, and share this podcast with your friends. The more people that know about the back of the range, the better. And you can also listen to this podcast on Stitcher or Google Play or Overcast. And if you listen to podcasts someplace else and you'd like me to post the episodes on a different podcast client, let me know. Shoot me an email, ben at thebackoftherange.com. I'll see what I can do about making these episodes accessible everywhere that's convenient to our listeners. Also, we are on Instagram. You can find us at the Back of the Range Podcast. This is the best place to get the latest information on the podcast. In fact, as the PGA Tour starts their Florida swing, we are going to be posting live from the Honda Classic this weekend. So this is the best time to follow us on Instagram. Again, it's at the Back of the Range Podcast. So as I said, with the PGA Tour starting their Florida swing, I thought it'd be a great time to release one of the very first episodes recorded for the Back of the Range. Our guest this week is Duke Butler IV from Jacksonville, Florida. Duke grew up in Houston, Texas, but soon found his way to the University of Florida and played collegiate golf with the likes of Matt Every and Camillo Villegas, the 2010 Honda Classic champ. He participated in several USGA events and shared some great stories about those experiences. He's also had some experience working behind the scenes of some PGA Tour and Web.com events, so he has some great insight on how these tournaments function and all of the hard work necessary to have them come off flawlessly. So, Duke, really appreciate you making the time for us here at the back of the range. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ben. Look forward to it. So, you have a really unique uh, beginning in the game of golf, and a lot of that, I would say, has to do with, with your father. Now, you grew up in Houston, Texas. Give me an idea just, you know, not only your experience growing up and playing junior golf in Texas, but how yours was a little bit different than just the, you know, the average rug rat uh, playing golf. Yeah, m- most definitely. My father, uh, when I was a kid, was the tournament director of the Houston Open. So um, I had a unique opportunity to be around a lot of the PGA Tour players when I was a kid growing up. And, you know, for here's a small example. I remember going to a Little League baseball game, and let's say it was like Wednesday of the Houston Open week, and my mom and I stopped in Waterburger to get a little bite to eat before the game, and King Stewart sees my mom, says hello, comes over and sits down and eats with us. You know, <laughs> a lot of funny little things like that that aren't that aren't very normal. But uh, I've kind of I've known it since a young age. My father had the title of tournament director. They'd always give me a little badge. It said Little Duke, Little Tournament Director, and I uh, I've just kind of been surrounded by it my uh, my entire life to date. So you you kind of had the run, the the run of the joint at the Houston Open. Did the all access ever get you into a little bit of trouble? Just maybe overstepping your bounds just a little bit as the little tournament director? No, I think I was too young and uh, to know better. So I was you know going out and watching my favorite player, and we lived right on TPC at the Woodlands. And here's a good one: I was uh, I got a dog for Christmas one year. I don't remember how old I was, probably eight or nine. So it would have been like around eighty nine, ninety. And uh, we only had the dog for about a year and a half, one year during the tournament. 
it was in the backyard barking way too much. And uh, I think the story goes something like this. In the player locker room, Sevi Ballesteros was complaining about some dog barking by 15 green and 16 <laughs> tee. Turns out it was the tournament director's son's dog, so the dog did not stick around for too much longer after that. I still don't quite know the full story there, but maybe one day I'll figure it out. Uh-huh. So you're saying the uh, dog got a, uh, a lifetime exemption to uh, puppy mill down the street. and uh, Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you don't hear that one all the time. So your dad, I mean, just obviously you're, you know, the fourth, so your father would be the third because, you know, I'm obviously a math major. And he's a 1986 inductee into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame. And um, 1969, he's he's on the Southwest Conference Championship team at, at Texas A&M. Did, and did that pretty much make your decision or lead you in, down the road to where you're going to go to college? Well, my grandfather, so my dad went from kindergarten through, you know, basically graduating college on the same on the same road in College Station, Texas, you know. His elementary school, junior high, high school was on one side, Texas A&M was on the other. His father, my grandfather, worked for Texas A&M University for over 50 years and was involved in many different areas. And actually, the animal science complex was named after him, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, something like that. And my aunt, my uncle, everybody... Uh, on that side of the family, went to Texas A&M. So I always kind of had tunnel vision towards Texas A&M as a kid. I grew up going to the football games when I was in junior high and my freshman year of high school was in Texas. You know, I was fortunate. I was able to go have sideline access to a lot of the Texas A&M home games. Um, oh, yeah. R.C. Slocum was the head coach, and his son John was a couple years older than me, and he was a pretty good golfer in his own right at the time. And so I was uh, I was pretty lucky as a kid to be behind the scenes for a pretty powerful football team in the, in the 90s. You have all access pass to the, to the golf. You have access pass to the football. And then, you know, tell me about your, your junior golf uh, experiences and how that led to, to Texas A&M. Were you recruited or did they just uh, basically grab you early on and say, guess what, Here's we, we want you? Or how, how did that whole thing happen? Yeah, I'll try to make it as concise as possible. So the first 14 years of my life, I grew up in Texas. The summer of, I guess it was 96, unfortunately, my mother passed away and my dad had been living in Florida working for the PGA Tour for a couple years at that point. So I transitioned between freshman and sophomore year from College Station, Texas to Jacksonville, Ponte Vedra, Florida. And uh, so I, when I was getting, you know, sophomore, junior, senior years of high school, and I, uh, I kind of became attached to the Florida Gators a little bit. You know, they had Steve Spurrier, and I went to golf camp one year, I think, even before I moved to, to Florida. And I remember one thing, Buddy Alexander, was uh, he had to leave early because he had qualified for the U.S. Open. So I thought that was uh, pretty unique. Yeah. <laughs> the coach has to take off from golf camp to go play in the U.S. Open at Oakmont, I believe it was. Um, but I was kind of always dead set on going to A&M. I visited five or six other schools, and, but I carried a maroon golf bag in junior golf. I had Aggie head covers. Like, everybody kind of knew where I was going to go. Um and sure enough, even looking at a few other schools, and they, I had offers from other places, but uh, I was always kind of dead set on going to Texas A&M, and that's what I did. And uh, after I got there, uh, to make things simple, it was too familiar, if that sure. makes sense. Like sure. I grew up on the campus going to all those football games. Golf team was good, not great. We were playing the same courses I kind of grew up playing, but you know, I'd only been removed for a couple of years and was driving the same roads I'd been driving as I was a kid. So it felt a little too familiar. I came home for Christmas and made a comment to my dad, something basically what I just explained to you. And he said, and I think most kids feel that way. Give it another semester and we'll see how you feel in the summer. And 
you know, we had an okay golf team, like I said. We missed qualifying for NCAAs by a shot or two at Karsten Creek, uh, we played regionals. And I came home, and I just kind of looked at my dad, and I was like, yep, it's just it's not the right fit. It was as a kid. I loved going to the game. I love the university. I love the school. But it's just it feels way too familiar. I think college should feel a little different than this. And uh, coincidentally, Florida won the national championship while I was a freshman at Texas A&M, and I knew plenty of boosters. I knew Buddy a little bit. I played against him in some amateur golf in the summers and whatnot when I was 17 or 18 years old. And so I had to make the transition very quietly and carefully. I mean, when I was trying to dial the athletic department in Texas A&M to ask for a release, I think I hung up the phone 30 times before I could dial the full <laughs> phone number. I mean, it was painful. I spoke to the guy that I had to talk to, and he was bragging about a trip to Reno and how there was snow on the mountains in the summer, and he couldn't believe it. And he was like, hey, what's up? And I was like, uh... I think I want to be a little closer to home. I had a sister that was born the summer after I graduated high school, who's now a freshman at the University of Virginia. So I was attached. I liked it in Florida. I wasn't positive where I was going to go, but uh, when I wrote out a list of five or six schools, Florida was at the top, and it didn't take very long to get it to happen. So I was very, very fortunate. Sounds like you had a really probably as easy a transition as you can make a bet. Living in Ponte Vedra in the Jacksonville area and just being attached to to UF and you know getting released and, and getting over there, um, yeah, that that makes total sense. What you're saying about uh, about college, you should be a little bit uncomfortable and you should uh, have a little bit unknown. If you're driving the same streets, it just sounds like it just wasn't really anything to do with the the team or your coach or the or it just sounds like it just wasn't a unique college experience. It's just an extension of your childhood. Yeah, pretty much. It was, that's for sure. It, uh, I just wanted to feel different, and going to Florida it certainly made it feel different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so leading into that, so give me the one thing or give me a couple things uh, in Gainesville that just really just hit you as, oh, my gosh, I'm really not – I'm not in Texas at all anymore. I mean, I am just – this is a different world. What, what did you – Well, it was you? pretty cool. You know, so I qualified for the USAM. In the summer before I transferred for the summer while I was transferring from Texas A&M to, to Florida, and my uh, one of my teammates from Texas A&M, he was a freshman at the same time. We were roommates. He qualified for the USAM that same year at Eastlake, and he was excited for me and everything. And we were checking into the hotel, and and Camilo Vajegas was like three people behind me, and he hits me on the shoulder and was like, "Hey, hey." One of your new teammates is back there, and we knew who he was. He was really, really good as a freshman. And just to, not, not to not to and not to cut you off, but we're talking about the 2001 USAM at East Lake in Atlanta, where they play the Tour Championship. Yeah, so we're yeah. checking in the hotel. I, I turn around, I introduce myself to Camilo Jagas, and I said, "Hey, my name's Duke. I'm transferring. I'm going to be on your golf team." He gives me a hug. <laughs> I was like, "All right, that's kind of that's kind of cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to this." And we're playing our practice rounds, and I'm messing around over the chipping green. And Bubba Dickerson's over there, and I've played a ton of golf going to high school in Jacksonville with Bubba Dickerson. And he was always a guy that I, you know, very rarely beat. And so I was kind of joking around asking him, like, hey, man, I just uh, got an apartment in Gainesville. Where are you living? And in typical Bubba Dickerson fashion, he's like, oh, I'm not real sure yet. Well, school starts like five days from that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes out and he wins the U.S. Amateur and gets to Gainesville late and has to find a place to live. So he's a unique cat in his own way. But, uh, I was walking from, I walked into a preseason number one college golf team, and I remember the first couple of rounds of qualifying in Gainesville. We couldn't play the university course because it was getting renovated, so we were playing down the road at Gainesville Country Club. And, you know, like first two or three rounds, I might shoot 73 or 74, and I'm like, you yeah, know, it's fine. Texas A&M, I'm going to qualify for the tournament doing that. Well, 
I'm playing with guys that are shooting 67 and not batting an eye. And I'm like, holy cow. All right, let's go. <laughs> yeah, this different different world here. So, um, wow, that's uh, so so Dickerson wins the USAM. And not only does he have to find a way and, and to get himself uh, situated to play in the Masters the next year, that just seems like the top of the mountain compared to, you know, the fact that he doesn't even know where he's going to stay for school. That's, yeah, that's just Bubba being Bubba back in the day. But uh, it was pretty funny. That's great. That's great. So, so you get, you're getting settled at UF and uh, again, you mentioned your, your coach, Buddy Alexander, who again, you know, 1986 wins the USAM. He's on the Walker cup team in 87. And then you just mentioned he had to leave early at a, at a, at a Gator golf camp to go, oh, sorry, sorry, boys. I gotta go do this thing called the US open. <laughs> so what was it like having a coach that, you know, I mean, every coach you would assume has a decent, you know, playing pedigree, but but this is kind of all world stuff where you have a golf coach that just is, I mean, he's got everything you guys are shooting for. So, so. Oh yeah. He's been there and, uh, he lets you know it too. I mean, he's going to his <laughs> office for a meeting and that, that U.S. Amateur stuff from Shoal Creek is pretty prominent. And, just accidentally uh, shows he, up there, right? Just the, oh, yeah, yeah. Accidentally, you're accidentally staring at it when you're sitting on the, hit the uh, other side of the desk. <laughs> But, no, he could flat-out play. His knowledge was unquestionably just, you know, pretty much almost as good as it gets. And uh, it was intimidating. There's no doubt about it. Um, he'd play with us. He'd beat us occasionally. Uh, you know, we'd have a little inter-squad match play thing, you know, and he, he took pride in taking people down. I mean, one year I beat him. I think we were doing it in, like, November. He didn't want to talk to me for a week after that. So I was proud of what I did. But, you know, he, remind, he was, it was a constant reminder every day. Maybe I, he started to talk to me about a week and a half after that fact. But. Wow. The guy was good. You had to respect that. Um, yeah, you, you, it was very challenging to kind of question Buddy Alexander because his pedigree and his resume was better than anybody on that team. So it was a privilege, and I learned a ton from him. And uh, yeah, it was just a it was just a tremendously cool thing. Well, I'm I'm looking at uh, a couple things on your your resume here, and. Uh, we have the 03 USAM at, at, at Oakmont, and then you back it up with getting into the 04 uh, USAM at, at Wingfoot. I, I can't imagine just having a, a better back-to-back -back US Amateur experience. Um, you know, I've asked other other guests on the, on the podcast about, about qualifiers. Uh, we all go through them. Amateurs go through whether it's your, your, your club's match play event or it's a county event or even, you know, we do a lot of Florida State tournaments together. What is it about uh, USGA qualifiers that you kind of keep in mind? Uh, and what's your mindset going into these? Because this can translate, as I said, all the way down the line to just basically how do you get yourself in position to play meaningful golf when you know you have to shoot a good score? I think you have to. It's uh, a great question, by the way. Um, I think a lot of it is mental preparation. Uh, for 2001 and 2003, the U.S. Amateur Qualifier, the course here in Jacksonville called Windsor Park. And when I was a junior golfer, they had an AJGA tournament there. And I played in it every year that I was eligible, and I never played well. I did not like the golf course at all. And then I get into college, and the U.S. Amateur Qualifier is going to be there pretty much every year. And uh, I was having a conversation again with my dad, and he was like, you know what? You need to learn how to go love that golf course. Go over there every day for a week or something, play by yourself, play with some buddies, and just figure out a way to fall in love with it. And that completely changed my perspective. And so I went out in 01, and I qualified. I don't remember what I shot exactly. And then in 03, I think I shot about 70 in the first round, just being patient. I was in a comfortable spot, maybe shot 66 the second day and won it by three or four shots. And 
just kind of cruised into it. And uh, I just had to find a comfort zone to do that. And then I just kind of found a comfort zone in USJ qualifiers moving forward. So I qualified again in 04. It was a different course in Jacksonville I was pretty familiar with. Um, I think in 05 or 06, I lost in a playoff for the last spot. But uh, I just I just took a different approach to it, and it, it worked for me. So really it's just kind of mentally convincing yourself that you can do it no matter what the stage is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know me too. I have to be I have to be picky. Even back in college, I still was really, really short. And so a tree line golf course that's not super long is gonna is gonna be an advantage for me. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, dude, because you know, I, you know I'm six four and I'm gonna delicately say that you're not. Um so <laughs> Going back to junior golf, high school, you know, college. So you're getting people are out driving you by a, a really decent amount, and you know, I'm just wondering, you know, the whole distance thing is not going away. I mean, the the, the bomb and gouge, and basically the mentality of these kids coming up, where just hit it as far as you can, and just hack it onto the green, and just roll putts in, and you know, shaping shots is kind of going away, and playing conservative and. It, it's getting more into just, just bomb it. And you see it on TV. You see it in just about every stage of the game. How did you get through playing high-level golf where you're really getting outdriven? And what do you think of where the game's going with, with this? You know, I, I wasn't short in college. I mean, I was short, but uh, like in 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, the guys on my team, like a Matt Every, Camilo was pretty long and he was about my size. Um you know, I was 30 yards, 20 yards behind those guys off the tee. And when that second Pro V came out and I couldn't take advantage of it, I went from being 20 to 30 yards shorter. I, next thing I know, I'm 50 to 60 yards shorter than them. Yeah. So I made up for it in the short game. Um, and I was a good role player in college for from a team perspective. My score was going to count, you know, a high percentage of the time. You know, if I played well, I'd shoot under par. If I played poorly, I wasn't going to shoot a million. So... You know, I was a good four or five guy for UF when it comes down to it. And, you know, when I was at AM, I was a one or two guy shooting the same score. So that's just kind of a different level for those programs at the same time. But, you know, I kept up with it as best I could. In the summers, I played pretty well and I could free wheel a little bit more. But, you know, you just find other ways. Like, I didn't miss a ton of fairways. I was pretty lucky with that. I was, uh, you know, slightly above average putter. And if I missed a green, I had a pretty darn good short game. So I wish I still had a lot of those characteristics. <laughs> but, you know, they're not yeah, nice so okay because i was just curious about that because i i think a lot of um you know a lot of what you just said really will ring true with a lot of uh people listening that are whether they're high level amateurs or you know 10 15 and 20 handicappers you do not need to bomb at 300 yards if you can make up for it with good wedge play and good short game and obviously rolling the ball what what were some of the the practice sessions like when you were uh when you were at uf you know coach alexander really got you know, got you guys on to, to improve your short game and, and, you know, what were those sessions like? I'm assuming at, at a D1 school, you're not just going out and playing every day. There's going to be different things you're doing. Yeah. Buddy, buddy loves qualifying. He loves putting us in the fire. Um, but when we practiced, you know, he wouldn't really regulate it too much. I would say a lot of it was just hundred yards and then or 120 yards. And then back then we had a short game area that was awesome. It was redesigned and reopened uh, my first year at Florida so we had target greens that we could hit, you know, probably anything up to about, oh, I could probably hit an A-iron. The other guys might only hit a wedge. But, um, but you know, remember when those nets came out that you'd see on the driving ranges that were, you know, looked like a basketball hoop out there, only about 10 times bigger than a basketball hoop? You know, we had a bunch of those. Yeah, we had a bunch of those scattered around. So you really focus in. And, 
we actually we just had a really special practice facility. But there's nothing Buddy Alexander loved more than making us qualify and, and going out and competing. And I think his favorite thing to do was make us tee off at 7 a.m. on a Saturday when we had a home game and then do it again at 7 a.m. on a Sunday after a home game. I'm pretty sure we have to do this every college football weekend when uh, when we weren't at a tournament. So, you know, it built character, I guess. Oh. oh, come on, Coach. Why would you do that? Come on. Oh, it was it was brutal. Trust me. I was one of the more social guys that go out a little bit and – you know, I managed to pull it off a few times, but there were some rough mornings. <laughs> I can, I can just imagine. I mean, I I don't even know if you can really give me a name of just the 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 person that just had the most disastrous morning after a a football game. But I I can just imagine a lot of people just people on your team looking for the trees, looking for the bushes, just to uh, uh, yeah, get out of the heat. But um, wow. Yeah, at the end of the day, we're all college kids. We're going to do what we're going to do, whether we're told to or not. And, you know, sometimes you have to pay for it. Sometimes you could uh, be sneaky and get away with it. There you go. There you go. I'm looking also at the – you mentioned the the U.S. Amateur at Oakmont. So you had – I just went down the the list of some of the names. I mean, you got, you know, Haas and Billy Hurley and Harmon and Kirk and got all these guys. But that gear at at Oakmont, your coach ends up getting in, obviously because he won, and then you're there. James Vargas, who's a teammate, is there. Camilo's there. Jesse Mudd's there. J.C. Deacon's there. So you have all these Gators there. Um, did you guys just kind of have your own, you know, set up shop on the putting green? And you know, what was that experience like? Not just to to go there and and play in in a in a USGA event, but you have all your you have your teammates all around you. Yeah, and no, it was pretty fun. And you're at Oakmont, so uh, that doesn't stink. But uh, there's one there's one interesting fact about that USAMR. You know, there's I think 312 guys in the field at USAMR. You play two courses before match play. There were a ton of studs in the field. Not one player shot under par at Oakmont. Wow. And 312 rounds, I don't believe a single player broke par. It was an unbelievable test of golf. But yeah, speaking to everybody being in the field, I played Oakmont. I want to say I, play, I played Oakmont the first day, and I was in the morning late. And uh, number nine is a par five for the members. It was converted to a par four. And it's unique because the the putting green for number nine is also the practice putting green. It's the most gigantic putting green you've ever seen in your life. And it's obviously two big sections. And um, it's almost like a gigantic light bulb. Um, and so it's uphill. I'm, I've got five wood into this thing. And I hit it. And I just absolutely rip it. And I'm like, oh, no, get down. <laughs> And it doesn't, of course. I mean, it, it lands past the hole, and it rolls down into the putting green. And so here I am, like, I've got a putt. It's like, that's probably 150 feet. I don't know. It's over a ridge, down a ridge, and then some. And I'm back there reading it, and I'm looking at it from every angle I could. And all of a sudden, I hear a voice go, how's it going, parts? Oh, no. And that was Buddy Alexander. Oh, no. <laughs> he and he was giving me the needle, just like you would. And so I just kind of laughed and shook my head. And I, I two-putted that son of a thing somehow. I don't know how, but I two-putted. And I actually shot a pretty good score at Oakmont. And the other course that was my demise. Well, that had to have been uh, pretty interesting, just having all the – just a ton of gators there at Oakmont. Did uh, did you guys were able to at least sneak a couple beers in without Coach knowing, or was he kind of off the clock for that uh, for that event? I, I think we all stayed out of his way pretty good. Though, there you go. I remember. Yeah. So, and then, you know, I'm looking also at some of these rosters that uh, that you had through your teams, and, you know, I really came across this 03-04 roster that you have here. You know, you have, and I'm just going down the list of just how, I mean, just 
no particular order, but you have Ryan Cochran, who is Russ Cochran's son. Russ Cochran won the Senior British Open. Now he's catting for, for Kenny Perry on PJ yeah. Tour Champions. So then you got Every. He's one on the tour. Stegmeyer, he's on tour. Um, obviously, you have Camillo. You have his brother, Manuel, who's, who's uh, web.com. Uh, Jesse Mudd, who's head coach at Lamar, and he was an uh, assistant at Kentucky. You know, obviously, to, to ask, you know, did you see this coming and did you see all these things happening when you're in school with all these guys? What was it like just having these guys, I mean, just seeing this happen? Just, you know, did you see anything from any of these guys that might have this much of a, a leap into the, into the pro ranks? Yeah, a little bit. I would be lying if I said I, I could have, you know, predicted it as clearly as it, as it all happened. But sure. we were good and it was fun. And uh, um, I think we won five or six regular season tournaments where the number one ranked team for most of the year. And Georgia was absolutely stacked. And I feel like, at least Avers in the tournaments, they were in the field as well. So it was a ton of fun. Um, I mean, the guys were just, they were playing so well. We um, we even had an assistant coach that year, Josh McCumber, who's Martin McCumber's nephew. Mm-hmm. And he had played some professionally and uh, got pretty frustrated with it and was burnt out and came to Gainesville, tried to get re- reignited, I guess, you know, find that little fire inside himself. And uh, he started playing with us on that spring. He started practicing a little bit in the fall. And uh, playing some in the spring, I think he'd hardly played any golf for about a year. Just wanted to get away from it. We couldn't beat him. <laughs> I mean, we were playing great golf. We were the number one team in the country. And there was a period of time where nobody on our team could beat him in qualifying. It was nuts. We were uh, we were playing Tim upon a country club in Jackson, getting ready for a postseason golf course. And I'm riding a cart with Josh. And, you know, we make the turn. And I think he's like six under. And I'm like, all right, this is pretty special. You know, he makes a few more birdies. Next thing you know, it's like a pitcher throwing no hitter. I'm like walking, letting him drive the cart. I don't want to disrupt him, distract him, nothing. He shot 62 or 63. It's course record. It might still be a course record. I don't know. But it, it, it held up for a number of years. I mean, the guy was on fire. And then, you know, the team goes and plays in NCAA, and he can't really practice for a couple of days. And then he gets back down to Florida and qualifies for the U.S. Open. The, the amount of good golf that was going on that year was just, it was out of this world. Good. It was so much fun. And uh, and a great group of guys to do it with too. Well, that's that's really the most important thing. I mean, obviously the great golf and competing is important, but uh, you know, college it's it's all about having fun. So, uh, give me a good, uh, give me some. Well, not remotely, uh, not not terribly embarrassing stories, but give me some fun stories about just being on the road at some of these tournaments. Uh, you know, being in the van and and just you know, give me a good one, one that's not going to embarrass mm. too many people. Yeah, so we played a tournament in Puerto Rico. It might have been my senior year, um, which is pretty cool. It was in the spring. It might have been our second tournament of spring. We go down there. It's my first time in Puerto Rico, and we're staying at a resort. And it's pretty nice. They have a casino in there. And uh, the guy I'm sharing a room with that week, he likes to gamble. And we all kind of go down to the casino for a few minutes, you know, a night or two on the trip. And everybody kind of knows it's going to happen. So it seems to be okay at the time. And uh, I'm sharing a room with uh, every. Um, and so Matt loses a little bit of money in the casino or I, I don't remember how much, but, uh, yeah, we're in college, you know, a little bit's a lot. Sure. And, uh, like I said, somewhat nice resort. We're getting ready to leave. And I'm like, your bags have way more stuff in them than, you know, we got here with. And he's like, yeah, I like these towels. I like these pillows. You know, I lost money. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to make it worth my while. <laughs> 
Okay, so he goes he goes full Holiday Inn uh, Express thievery on the uh, the towels and the. Did he take any lamps or was it just towels? Uh, I think he was looking for anything that would fit into travel gear. Okay, now this is before <laughs> eBay. I mean, he couldn't sell this stuff, or was he just like hawking this on campus? I think he's just taking it back to the spot. I don't know. I, I was just, uh, he, It was pretty innocent at the time, but, you know, it's just college guys being guys. Sure. He's like, I'm going to show them. They took my money. Yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm, yeah, like that's going to make a dent in their budget. Yeah, this <laughs> this shower cap is mine. So, <laughs> nice. So, so you 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 get done with with UF. Um, you're you're moving on to that uh, the the dreaded uh, real world of adult life. Um, what do you do after college? What's your next? What, what was your next step? My uh, my next step, I was going to play that summer. I knew I wasn't good enough to turn pro, and wasn't really. Uh, you know, a desire of mine. My father worked in the golf business on the PGA Tour side his whole career, and I've always wanted to head down that road. I've kind of been trained for it since I was a kid. But I took that summer right after college, summer of 05. I was like, I'm going to go play all summer, and then I'll figure it out. I was going to go intern in Tampa in the fall with it was then the Chrysler Classic at Innsbruck. So I had three months to just kind of enjoy it, and that's what I did. And and uh, had a, one really good week and a couple of really good stories that, that happened that summer. Well, we uh, we need to get into this one. This is the 2005 U.S. Pub Links. Um, I mean, it's just your standard USGA event because you know you've you've been doing this. You've been doing Wingfoot. You got Oakmont. You got East Lake. Uh, you know, you, this is this is old hat for you. So you get in. You qualify for the U.S. Pub Links. Um, and where was the qualifier for this one? Uh, I played in a qualifier in Jacksonville. Okay, so so you know. One one of your home courses, I would imagine, pretty much every course in Ponte Vedra and Jacksonville, you're pretty familiar with. So, so you qualify, you get in, you're excited, and uh, pairings come out. And uh, why don't you why don't you let us know who you got paired with? Yeah, so uh, I'm in Gainesville. Pairings come out. I don't know a couple of days before I'm going to leave to go up there. And I, you know, any college kid, I'm sleeping in. I get up and uh, my phone has a couple of missed calls. And so I, I look to see who they're from. And first one's from Matt Every. He left a voicemail. Second one is from a guy named Barry Hyde, who was the chief marketing officer of the USGA. And there were a couple others. And so my girlfriend at the time was like, what's going on? And I looked at her and I said, I'm going to look it up. But I'm pretty sure the pairings just came out. And I bet I'm paired with Michelle Wee. So... I listen to the voicemails and I look on the computer and I am paired with Michelle Wee and Matt's message is like, I can't wait to see this. She's going to outdrive you by so much. This is going to be awesome. Uh-huh. Every's just, we need to, I mean, has he been just the, the, the president of your, of your fan club pretty much just your entire college career? Cause it just sounds like he just loves just giving you the needle and, and, also, oh. and stealing hotel lamps, which is a legend. Yeah, but. He's an all, he's an all American. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. And so I look sure enough, pairings come out and, uh, it's pretty interesting because the way it was scheduled in the summer, she was playing the John Deere classic in Illinois the week prior and the pup links the first two rounds of qualifying on Monday, Tuesday. So she'd made the cut, you know, that had been a huge story everywhere. And, uh, and then she's going to show up in Cincinnati, Ohio to tee off in the USA Republic links. So, you know, she missed the cut at the John Deere. I reached out to her through somebody I knew and uh, wanted to see if she wanted to play a practice round, and, and that didn't turn out to happen. But we're the last tee time off Monday afternoon, oh, right? Gosh. 2 o'clock or 2.30. So I'm pretty nervous. I'm not going to lie. So I get to the first tee, and there are like three or 4,000 people there. 
I mean, both sides of the fairway are aligned with people. So I walk over to the cooler, and I'm looking for a water. I'm looking for anything, and, and the cooler's empty. And so I look at somebody, and they figure out what's going on. They bring me two bottles of water, and I drink them in about 15 seconds. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, I'm nervous. I mean, you can see it. My dad's there watching. I mean, it's pretty obvious. So I, it's par five. I think I made a sloppy bogey. And I get to the second hole, and it's a par four kind of, you get your tee shot up over a ridge. And so I hit it pretty good. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be interesting. And so she hits one. I think it caught the top of the ridge and mine got over. So I'm like 30 yards by her. And I'm like, all right, all right. It's not going to be too bad. Well, she flags it with like a six iron. And I barely hit the green with a nine iron. And I'm like, man, you got to you got to shake these nerves. And uh, about six holes into it, I, I, I figured it out. I calmed down. And we ended up shooting the exact same score for 37, 36 holes. I think it was 147. So we're going to make match play. So oh Matt's gosh. there playing in this U.S. Amateur Publix, too. Oh, no. He's um, there, too? <laughs> he's there. We're, we're sharing a hotel room. Oh, gosh. Um, and so uh, and he, he's a favorite because he had just been low-am at the U.S. Open at Piners. So, he's, you know, his, his head, you know, he's feeling good about himself. Um, and so he plays pretty well. And, you know, he's, he's going to be one of the better seeds. And we're going to fall somewhere between, like, let's say, like, 45 and 55. And so we get done. And. And Matt's doing the calculations in his head, and he can't sit still. We go to dinner. He's like, I cannot wait for these pennies to come out. He's like, I want to play Michelle Wee. I cannot wait for this to happen. So we're sitting at dinner, and he walks outside to call to see if pennies are out like three, four times. I mean, he's so excited about this. It's awesome. And and, and this so is and, and this and this also kind of goes to, you know, this isn't the day where everything comes out on on smartphones. This is calling and annoying someone and asking them if, they, if things come out yet. So this is this is a little bit before just being able to dial up something on your phone and see everything re- released automatically. So, so yeah, so so he's in there three times doing this and, and just yeah, finally... And so, yeah. yeah, he finally, he finally gets, he finally gets through to somebody and, and he figures it out. And so he walks back, walks back inside the restaurant and he pats me on the back and just looks at me and goes, loser caddies? <laughs> Oh, and you guys he got me. Oh, <laughs> so I, we laughed about it a little bit. And I mean, we were laughing about it all night the next day. You know, couldn't have worked out much better for me and much worse for him, as it turns out. But we were so concerned about who's Michelle we going to play. So we called back and we're like, wait, 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 who's Michelle we playing? And they're like, uh, Will Claxton. Well, Will played at Auburn. He's in the hotel room across the hall from us. We can't, well, now we can't wait to get back to the hotel. And so we get back and we knock on Will's door. He's not in there. So I go and I'm like, maybe he's in the bar. I go and you check and he's not. And he's outside and Will Clarkson's outside. He's smoking cigarettes. And so he just kind of looks at me and he's like, hey, man, how good is she? And I'm like, Will, she's good. She impressed me beyond all belief. She works the ball both ways. Like, dude, you got your hands full. You're just putting, like, the, you're right, just putting well, the fear of God in him, Art. You're just enjoying that. Was every there too having fun with him also? Every was there too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, so we're there. And so uh, we tee off in our match, Matt and I do, and we have a walking score. And so even when we're on the first hole, we're like, hey, we want to be updated. Like every update you have about Michelle Wee and Will Claxton, let us know what's going on. So the guy does that. And I get up early on that. And uh, so I played all the men all the time. Uh, and I ended up hanging on. I think I won maybe two up. It went 18 holes, but I got it. My clipping. And Michelle, we defeated Will. 
So, I mean, we can't, we're walking from the 18th green back to the clubhouse. It's like a 200 yard walk. My phone's in my golf bag. You know, it's an old flip phone. And it's my kind of pre-text message. And uh, so I pull my phone out and I already have like five congratulatory text messages. The match has only been done for five minutes. And it's a group of guys. Everybody was down at the players' end in Hillcat, South Carolina. Stegmeyer, a couple of Georgia guys. They're all like, good work today, man. <laughs> so they're all so, dialed uh, in. So Yeah, so, they're, they're, they were in a rain delay or something, and they had all eyes on what was going on between me and that. So it was kind of funny. So I didn't last much longer. I lost in the second round to a kid that played for Indiana. And, and coincidentally, to make this week even crazier, like, I was like, three down with three to play or something. I'm on a part three and I'm like, well, I might as well go right at it. And I knocked it in. Well, in the match, one more hole, you know, delay my death for a little while. Sure. Like, even on the day I lost that week, I made a hole in one. So it was kind of wild all around, but Michelle, we then goes on. I'm not saying the next match to be Jim, to play Jim Renner from Boston, Massachusetts. You know, Jim's been on tour. A few sure. Times and he's had a little bit of success and, uh, and she beats Jim. And so there's a group of us. It's Matt, myself, Jim Renner, Anthony Kim was at that tournament. And we're all having dinner together in the hotel restaurant. And just kind of laughing about everything. And, and coincidentally, the Boston Red Sox are playing the New York Yankees on ESPN2 in the games in New York. And so that has that scrolling ticker that goes across the bottom of the screen the entire time. And about every third minute, it gets posted that Michelle Wee defeats Jim Renner oh, three and two. God. And Jim's like, this is like the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Literally every person I know in Boston is watching this baseball game. <laughs> and this is going across the screen every third minute. Just yelling so to people, hey, Jim, enjoy. you're on TV he again. Had, he, yeah. Yeah. I remember he had to turn the cell phone off. So that was, uh, that was a pretty crazy week. Wow. And, and, uh, you know, the important thing too, is that, uh, you know, every took more towels from that hotel and, uh, he's all stocked up. So, yeah. Yeah. I think he's doing all right in that department. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the important thing. So, um, so now we're, so you, you, you did some playing right after college. And as you said, you, you pretty much are, um, going the same route that your, your father went as far as, you know, tournament director and, you know, where did you really, I, I you know, don't want to say internship, but where did you really get started with tournament ops and prep and things like that? Where where did you kind of cut your teeth? Yeah, so I interned with the Tampa Bay PGA Tournament in the fall, and then pretty early in 2006, um, somebody I knew from uh, my parents were in the PGA Tour. He had left the PGA Tour to start his own sports marketing company. It was then called the McGriff Group. This guy, Bill McGriff, and so he hired me. I was his fourth employee. And so our biggest client was Zurich, and they were the title sponsor of the New Orleans tournament. And he was, you know, slowly starting to build his portfolio. So I came on board. UBS was another client. They were a proud partner of the players at the time, and I was kind of tasked with handling that account best I could. So I did that for a couple of years. We did a couple of really cool things. Um, he came up with this idea to create a replica of the 17th hole at TPC Sawgrass. And UBS loved it. They were like, how do we do that? Let's do it. And so I'd been there about a month, and he came over to me, and he was like, now we got to figure out how to get this thing done in time for the tournament. And the tournament was in March. And so this might have been like the end of January. So we started, you know, looking any which place we could, and we found a company in Jacksonville that did a lot of stuff for amusement parks in Orlando. 
and we created a thing called the UBS 17 Challenge. It was a 33-yard replica with the 17th hole. Underneath the tent, we had this sports net company build a, build a huge net like you would see at a baseball game to drape this tent. And we created everything. We built like a pond, and I forget how many gallons of water were in there, but it took water trucks like three, four, or five days to fill it up. And uh, so that was really, really fun. And then one year, um, we had two of them going. We had the one at the tournament, and we uh, built one in Rockefeller Center in New York oh, wow. so to be on NBC to promote it. And so it was up there for like two weeks' time. And um, his portfolio kept growing, and, and that uh, that group now, the CAA Sports Golf Division, they probably had $20, $25 million in sports sponsorships when I was there. And I bet they have upwards of like $300 million. I mean, they're just – they're they're – doing awesome awesome stuff and uh and so that was kind of my you know early education professionally to different sides of the pga tour and i loved it but what i loved was being on site at the tournaments you know getting my hands dirty doing whatever i could knowing my way around figuring out how to solve problems things like that so my father um was working for the fries.com open at the time he had retired from the tour in 2007 and they retired for about 10 months um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, he was kind of tasked with the, the schedule of the PGA Tour and dealing with host organizations. And that year in '07, the international fell off the schedule, and uh, you know I think he had pitched it. I might not get this entirely right, but he had pitched like Tiger Woods people that, hey, you know the opportunity for you to have a tournament might be sooner than you think. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. They announced the AT&T National was going to happen in uh, Washington, D.C. at Congressional 100 days before the first tee shot of the tournament was hit. So Tigers people contacted my dad, and they're like, hey, can you help us get this thing started? And so he essentially moved up to D.C. for three months to you know, create a PJ Tour tournament in 100 days, which beyond how he did it is me. I don't understand, but wow. um, I love that side of it, like little things like that. And that's not a little thing. That's a big one. But then the Fries people, he had brought them on board to sponsor a tournament. They're like, hey, can you, uh, like, you know, do some stuff for us? And so he's like, yeah, I can. He's like, uh, I'm going to stay in Florida, but, you know, I'll work on your tournament every day of the year. I'll come out there for 100 days, whatever it takes to do it. And so he kind of he was president of that tournament for a number of years until it went off the schedule a year ago. And so I was like, hey, how can I help you? Um and he said, oh, you can just keep learning from me a little bit. I'll mentor you some more. And But we need to recruit some players. You know, it was a fall event, didn't have a great field. I was young enough. I was in, like, late 20s, early 30s. You know, these guys that I played against in college are starting to have some success on the PGA Tour, so maybe I can use that as an advantage. So I would go around to a handful of PGA Tour events, and honestly, I started just kind of focusing on the guys that I knew, the Kevin Kisner's of the world, the Matt Everys, the Camillos, you know, people like that that, you know, I had a different reputation. They knew I could play a little bit. Um, which helped tremendously. So I um, and I had a, a comfort level of being around PJ Tour guys that I wasn't super intimidated to kind of walk up and talk to them when I was at a tournament. So we did that for a number of years, and it was fun. But you know, recruiting guys to PJ Tour events is, is a challenging task for a tournament that's you know maybe has a slightly smaller purse. It doesn't have a great date on the schedule. You know, I think there's you know there's forty something tournaments those guys can choose from. And the really good ones only have to play a minimum of fifteen. Um, so let's so, so, so let's yeah, just let's, I'll let you yeah that. let me yeah, let me just so let me just back up one second here just to kind of level set for people that are listening. So the fries dot com, you said not the best time on the calendar. So so when during the year did the fries fall? 
in October. Okay. So it's in October, and this is, I'm assuming, it's before the whole wraparound season with the PGA Tour started. So it's it's either at the end of a season or it's the – now I guess it's more of a – it was a, or it was a kickoff. So, mm-hmm. so again – you talk about recruiting players and, you know, we've spoken about this uh, previously where, you know, the guys that are at the top, the Spieth, the Days, the Rory's, Tiger, Phil, you know, they can play anything they want to. I mean, they have exemptions upon exemptions and they can do what they want. And, you know, but then whenever you hear a guy win a tournament, uh, a middle of the pack PGA Tour player or someone that maybe doesn't have, uh, you know, 100% of full status, you know, sure, they get the trophy, they get the money, they're going to play in the Masters next year, but almost to a T, every single one says, now I can set my schedule. Next year is set. I know what I'm going to play in. So how do you stand out, or how does any tournament stand out and attract the players? Like, what are the things that you focus on? Because that's something that I think would be really interesting to, to understand. How does that happen? Yeah, well, the thing I, I there's a couple different ways to answer that. Um, one of the approaches that my dad took, and I've kind of, I'm a big believer in, is identifying the young guys. So the first year I was kind of heavily involved in the Fries event, it was at Greyhawk. And uh, that year my dad had given sponsored exemptions to Jamie Lovemark and Ricky Fowler. And uh, coincidentally, there was a playoff for the tournament. It was Troy Madison, Jamie Lovemark, and Ricky Fowler, and Troy Madison won it. Yep. So you develop some goodwill with guys like that, and you hope that they continue to come back. Um, and he did that year in and year out. He started doing that in Houston. He picked guys that played for the University of Houston or, you know, people that he knew, hey, these guys are going to have some success out here, and, you know, let's give them a little taste of it early on. So every year, that was something that we carefully, carefully looked at. Um, who are we going to give these exemptions to? So just off the top of my head, you know, people that we gave them to, um, let's see, um, Justin Thomas one year when we were out in California. Uh, like I said, Jamie, Ricky, um, let's see, Bud Colley potentially, um, Patrick Reed. Um, I think we gave one to Patrick Rogers one year, Kevin Tway, you know, guys like that. You know, you just kind of know who these college guys are, the ones that have the pedigree. I mean, they all do these days. I mean, so many of them are so good. But uh, basically, like, you know, what story hasn't quite been written yet and how can we help it happen? Uh, Fry's was unique in one way. Um, they owned their own golf course, and it's super, super private. It's called the Institute. And uh, I think there's a stat. It's like it has less than 500 rounds played on it each year. Um, so not that many people get to see it. We would always do – we'd invite a player, maybe 15 of them year in and year out, to come participate in an outing, usually on Tuesday of tournament week. So that was one way how we could get a couple others, you know, pay them just a little bit of money to do it. Not a ton. It's not going to change their week overall, but, you know, it's enough to entice them to, to come out and play. You know, and they play with the VIPs, the Fry's Electronics guests, the Sony's of the world, people like that that you'd see in their stores. Um, and it was pretty special. I mean, one year we had Tiger Woods out there, and he was doing it. And uh, we'd given a sponsor exemption to Patrick Cantlay. He was still an amateur. And after this 18-hole outing at the Institute, happened tiger came out he gave a clinic off the 10th tee and he then uh he's like hey you know this is all about sign obviously he's like patrick and tiger are going to go play nine holes and if y'all want to walk with them you can go watch and this is when tiger was making the comeback i think it was 09 or or 2010 um exact years escaped me off the top of my head 
But that was surreal. I'm out there walking around watching Tiger Woods coming back from everything against one of the best college players in the country, and Patrick Cantley wasn't even saved. I mean, there's about 100 people watching him. And then that was the first year you kind of, you know, talk to the PGA Tour about special pairings. And they paired Patrick and Tiger, and I can't remember who the third person was uh, in that group. And I'm watching them get ready to tee off on number one. It's live on TV. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was kind of a mechanism. But Patrick Cantley gets behind the ball and uh, before he walks into it, and he just lets out a huge yawn. And I was like, <laughs> wow, all right. <laughs> I don't think I've ever quite seen that before. And uh, it was a pretty cool experience overall. That is definitely a pre-shot routine that I've never heard of, especially how you pull that off and make it look natural in front of all those people. And, oh, by the way, uh, Tiger. Yeah, no, it was it was bonkers. It was uh, it was kind of a sign of things to come. Yeah, you know, Patrick Cantley, and you know, once he stays healthy for a while, um, I think you're going to see nothing but awesome stuff. So, um, give me one, and I you don't need to name drop here, but I I I can imagine with trying to get these PGA Tour players to come play in a tournament that maybe isn't at the most favorable spot on the calendar, you would have had to receive some crazy requests, crazy needs from some player that said, yeah, I'll come play, but I need this and this, or once they're on property, they need something. Give me one that just is just a, a head shaker of like, what is, what does this guy want? <laughs> uh, let me be careful here. Uh, now there are plenty. I'm, I mean, for the most part, the guys aren't terribly difficult. Um, there are a few of them that have some odd requests for like, for example, when we were in San Jose for the prize, uh, the resort only had like 40 rooms, and these are 40 of the nicest rooms you've ever seen. So one of the advantages we had is like, hey, we'll put you on property. You don't have to leave property all week. Um, and, uh, you know, that would entice some guys, especially their wives. If you could get to their wives and tell them how nice everything is, now that became monumentally easier when the tournament moved to Napa. I wasn't as involved when that happened, but you just go to their wife, hey, would you like to come to Napa for a week in October? And I think about 95% of them say, yes, yes, we would. But, so, so this is like the equivalent know. of the, of the whole, of the, of the Disney tournament. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. The kids are going to yeah, love it. But you know, I, here's one I can't say. So, uh, David Duvall is playing in the frost and they had a, this resort had an awesome locker room too. And so, you know, when I grew up, I grew up out at TBC Sawgrass, and David Duvall was number one player in the world. I mean, I thought it was cool that I could park next to his black Tahoe when I went out there to practice in the entrance. Um, and so he's playing one year, and, you know, he's opened it up. He's a little more personable, and there's some rain issues, weather issues, a little bit cold weather. And, uh, you know, they're about to go out for play, and David's like, hey, Duke, can you help me find a jacket? And I was like, oh, Sure. Let me see if I can hop on that real quick. So we had a couple of lockers just filled with stuff in my window, and I found, like, a navy blue extra-large jacket. I was like, yeah, David, here you go. Well, about an hour later, my dad's like, hey, you know where my jacket went? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I gave it to David Duvall. And uh, my dad still laughs to this day. He's like, yeah, I never got that jacket back. But, you know, for the most part, it's all funny stuff. You see and you hear some stuff, and... You know, it's just like being around guys. It's like, you know, they have a job to do. I always took it for the grand salt, like, especially at the Fry's events and then down the road when I was in Indiana for a couple of years. But, you know, those guys are there to work. Like, if I'm near them an hour and a half before they tee off or an hour, hour and a half after they play, like, I'll give you a pass. Like, you're getting ready to do your job, and it's pretty intense. And, 
you know, you, you hear and you see tons of funny stuff, but you hear and you see tons of awesome, awesome golf. And at the end of the day, that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you mentioned Indiana. So you were there getting the web.com tour finals kind of up and running. You know, watching golf at this time of year, uh, there's kind of an argument to be made. You know, you're seeing some of these guys in the PGA Tour kind of playing, uh, you know, the so-called silly season events where it's it's not the full field. But then you you look at the the web.com playoffs where these guys are really they're they're playing for their their jobs next year, and it's it's really really intense. Um, what are some of the things that you've noticed just being around web.com? Uh, compared to PGA Tour events, is there anything different that you kind of feel? I mean, obviously the level of play is amazing on on both stages, but is there a different vibe? Yeah, you know that was my number one question uh, going into the Web.com Tour Finals. So it was all announced in 2012, and 2013 was the first year of it. And uh, the tournament I was working on, Hotel Fitness Championship, was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, at a great golf course, Sycamore Hills, and it was the first of the four. So I'm sitting there looking at the money list um, all year long, and I'm thinking, all right, here's I'm going to have players that finish 126 to 200 from the PGA Tour that, honestly, they've had disappointing years, and there's going to be some big names in there, and they've got work to do. They're going to be, you know, they're not going to be happy to be here. Um, and then you have the top 75 guys on the web.com tour, and they're going to be elated to be here. Their job secured for another year at least. The top 25 guys are going to be over the moon because they have their card guaranteed. And how is this whole thing going to play out? So, you know, I had to promote the tournament in a certain way too. I had to focus on the guys from the PJ Tour that you'd know of. Um, so that year, Trevor Rummelman, his exemption from one of the Masters was expiring. Um, guys like Chad Campbell, you know, some other guys like Ricky Barnes. I mean, there were plenty of guys. Uh, there's one on the PJ Tour that names that could resonate when you're getting out and you're trying to promote the tournament. But then you've got these other 75 guys, and you don't really have a way to promote them. And so you kind of had to take an approach, and it wasn't the easiest thing to do. Um, you had all this promotional material with, like, Jim Fear, Zach Johnson. Who are all the guys that have graduated from the Web.com Tour? Yeah, they're not going to be here this week, but the next person that's going to be like that, that you haven't heard of yet that you will know of in five years, Kevin Kisner, you know, Patrick Rogers, guys like that. Um, they're going to be playing in this golf tournament, and they're all good. You just don't know who most of them are yet. And so to kind of come full circle on that first year in Indiana, um, Patrick Cantley's playing great. Kevin Kisner's playing great. They're all in contention. And, uh, it gets to the 72nd hole, and Patrick Cantlay has like a 12-foot birdie putt to get to 20 under, if I remember correctly. And I played that golf course enough to know how that putt broke. And he read it correctly, and he had a great putt, and somehow it didn't go in. Um, and in the final group, you've got Trevor Immelman out there in the fairway. And Trevor Immelman hits his approach in 18 to like 20, 25 feet. And he makes it to win the tournament. Now, this guy's guaranteed to go back to the PGA Tour. He is so happy. He hung around. He signed every autograph for every member, took every picture. Like, the sense of relief that he had that had come over him was just something that was pretty special to witness. And this is a guy that gets to play in the Masters for the rest of his life. And meanwhile, he he wins that event. Right. Yeah. But, you know, going into that week, I was so curious how the guys were going to respond. So I had the staff. All of my colleagues, I was like, hey, will you get me on the radio when so-and-so pulls up? So, perfect example again, Trevor Roman. He arrives in the parking lot. I'm close enough by where I can go over to greet him. 
and I know Trevor a little bit. So he's played in the fries a bunch, and he's been at some of the dinners that I've been invited to, and he was invited to. Just a great guy. And so he's getting ready to get some stuff out of his trunk, and I go up and I shake his hand, and I'm like, hey, you know, let me know if I can do anything for you. And he just looks me squarely in the eyes, and he's like, I appreciate it. He's like, I got, I've got work to do. Like, he was focused. And so I was like, all right, that's cool. Chad Campbell was kind of the same. I mean, there were so many guys. I'd have to go back and look at the field list. But I feel like these guys, I mean, they're so professional about what they do 99% of the time. Like, they were there to work. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what they did. Yeah, it's it's really um, it's really fascinating to let you to to have you talk about that because you know we just see what it is on TV or we say oh that life must be the best you got the corporate jets and and the 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 just playing golf for a living and I mean it just sounds like they're going into just a a grind of a a corporate business meeting for about five hours the only difference is that it's it's outside it's televised and they have to hit a hit a ball and be very precise. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. Like, uh, so that first year, uh, Kevin Kisner missed the cut the week before. Can't remember exactly where they were playing, but uh, he came up there early, and I was putting him up in a cottage along with a couple other guys that had just been built on site at the golf club. And uh, I had to go to a dinner the Sunday night prior to tournament week, and it was kind of a big deal dinner in Fort Wayne. I had to speak for five minutes, something like that. But the who's who from everybody around that area was there. And so we're at a table, you know, it's like a 12 person table and it's a banquet room full of them. And, uh, about halfway through it, Kisner's phone just won't stop vibrating. And I'm kind of looking at him and I hit him on the shoulder and I'm like, Hey, what's going on? And he looks at me and starts laughing. He's like, I kind of forgot that I was already exempt for the PGA tour next year. He'd finished in the top 25 on the web.com web.com money list. And he had forgotten it. <laughs> He was just there to get ready to play in golf tournament. So um, we're we're pretty much at the end here of of the uh, the interview, which uh, deep sigh of relief on your part, I'm sure. But we we kind of have something here called uh, just kind of the quick bucket, since we are at the back of the range, and these are just a couple random questions that that I I like to ask because it's it's kind of telling to see what everyone's uh, reaction is to this one. So I'm just going to throw this one out at you. You have Jack's victory at the Masters in 1986 versus, which hasn't happened yet, but if it does, Tiger's fifth green jacket. Which is the bigger victory, Tiger or Jack? That's a really good question. I'm going to give a biased answer, and that's going to be Jack's victory in 86 because uh, when he won in 86, what was he, 46 years old? 46 years old. Yeah, well, that's a bigger one to me, and that's, uh, like I said, being personal, because his next start was the Houston Open. He uh-huh. went and took a couple of weeks off, and I think he was fishing the whole time, and he honored his commitment to my dad at the time to go play in Houston, and that was a huge, huge deal for the city of Houston. That's uh, that's a, a biased answer, but that's a that's a good one. So we're gonna uh-huh. we'll, we'll definitely accept that one. So uh, so the the other question I have to ask. You can you can give one major championship to any player in history, male, female, alive, dead. They can have never won a major or they could have won multiple. You give one major to anyone, who would it be? Man, uh, I'm going to be biased again. I'm going to say Kamovajek. Okay. Uh, when we were in college, he was already a superstar in Columbia. And then when he got out onto the PGA Tour, um, TV networks in Columbia were picking up every PGA Tour event. Um, 
you know, because he was playing in them. And uh, he, he's a rock star down there, and he does a ton to give back. And I think if uh, he were to get one, the platform that would provide him with in South America would be just, just tremendous. Well, that's another good answer too. What I, I didn't ask you too much about Camilo. I mean, just give me a just a freakish, just like gym rat story of him, because I, I, I mean, obviously his his physical fitness and what he does to compete is is pretty well known. But just give me a random one from back in the gym at UF. I'll give you one from June this year. There you so go. We'll we're take playing that. in the state amateur at the Bears Club. Um, I love how you said we, as if I was there with you, but you go ahead. I understand what you said. You and you're there. Sure. There you go. Go Um, ahead. And so Camille, he plays in practices out there and he lives 10 minutes down the road. So I text him about two weeks prior and and text goes through and it's green, not blue. So I'm like, you know what? I'll wait a little too long. I bet he's down in Columbia. Um, so, you know, I make my normal hotel reservation and I get done playing, uh, Bears club in the first round and get a text from Camille and he's like, doogie. That's how he was talking to me. Doogie, come out. I'm practicing. And so I'll try to stop it with the impersonation. I'm terrible at it. So I go out, and it's it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm pretty tired. You know, it's 95 degrees, maybe hotter. And he's hitting balls. Um, like last week of June. So, I mean, it's hot. And uh, we're just laughing and talking. He's hitting balls. I'm making him laugh. It's like college all over again. I'm not. I'm sitting in a cart and shit. Um, you know, and he's bugging me. He's like, hey, go check out your hotel. You know, get over to my house. And so... Camillo is, uh, he's type A and he's OCD. So like he wants to do everything to perfection. And I'm kind of like in my hotel room in the solitude. I would feel that I'm like, yeah, I can't check out until tomorrow, but I'll do that. And I'll, you know, I'll come over to your house. And so this went on like every day I was down there, Thursday, Friday, Saturday afternoon, we'd go out and we'd practice. And so I was just, you know, asking him what's going on. He's like, I just got back from Columbia and I went down didn't touch a club, rode my bike the entire time. And I'm like, all right, cool. So, uh, what, what did you do today? He was like, ah, I went for a ride this morning. And I'm like, all right, you got to give me a little few more details. And I'm like, how far? He's like, eh, 80. That's 80 miles in the morning. And he's out practicing in the afternoon. And he did that every day that I was there. And it was 100 degrees outside. And he's not on a peloton. He's riding. He's, he's cycling around Palm Beach. So I get over to his house. And he's OCD about this. He's got a bike room. Like, if we had a club room and we knew how to tinker, we'd be in there all the time. Well, that's how he is with these bikes. And so I'm like, I mean, aren't you a little bit worried about, like, maybe getting hit by a car? He's like, eh, no, not really. We're riding packs and whatnot. And so I'm like, you just rode 80 miles. Like, where did you go? Now, he he gets excited. He's like, I'll show you. He pulls up his computer. He's got, like, every app, every tracking device all this other stuff. He started in Jupiter. He went down to Lake Worth. He bounced over to the beach, went up and down some island a couple of times, drove rode by the breakers like once or twice, and then back to his house, 80 miles. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, dude, you're nuts. So he loves doing it. He started doing that after college. In the gym, he loved to work out. He was always in there. I mean, the guy was just flat out ripped. And it was pretty funny. He got this ripped Colombian He's an all-world golfer in Gainesville, and he's riding around town on a scooter. He didn't have a car until he got out of college. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I got it. You got to send me a picture so I can upload a picture of that under the show notes because just a a, a Vijegas picture on a scooter. That's, you know, because, you know, the the scooter joke, you know. 
Anyway. It, it was priceless. I remember one time we caught him on 34th Street in Gainesville. We were going down to Gainesville Country Club, and it was raining. And he's riding his scooter down a major road in Gainesville with his golf clubs on the back. <laughs> That's awesome. Duke, I really appreciate it, man. This has been a lot of fun, a lot of great stories. Uh, and we will uh, we'll definitely catch up again uh, again soon. So uh, thanks for, again for being at the back of the range, and uh, and we'll get uh, we'll get every some more towels and lamps uh, next time you see them. <laughs> we need to get them some more birdies right now. All right, <laughs> that's it, man. All right, well, Duke, thanks again. I really appreciate it. All right, enjoy it, Ben. And there you have it, another great episode here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. Special thanks to Duke Butler the Fourth for joining us this week. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email. Follow us on Instagram also. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and hit subscribe and share it with your friends. Look forward to seeing you all next week at the back of the range.